0: never know how or where they're going to come back to you or who in the world is listening. I recently heard from a wonderful Irish lawyer um, who was is just in a very different state of life than I am, but he's really enjoying my episodes. And so um, shout out to Colm. Thank you for listening. So just really, really cool for me when I get feedback from people. Um, we have a really special episode today. This is very timely, perfect for Lent. I really realized in my own life recently that I don't know much about the history and the tradition of how Lent came together or how fasting looked in the uh, earlier centuries of the church, and turns out it was a lot more rigorous, um, which is actually, I find very inspiring to know that people, even though they had so much less back then, they fasted more than we do typically now. So really cool stuff from uh, Kristen Van Uden, who is an editor at Sophia Institute Press, and she's going to be talking about the Lenten Cookbook. And it's, this is going to be a bit of a companion episode to uh, a later episode that's coming with Dr. Scott Hahn. So he wrote essays for the Lenten Cookbook, and I'm really excited to release his interview in a couple of weeks. So that's going to be a few weeks into Lent, but I think it'll be good because it'll be at that point when we all want to give up on our fasting. So uh, we're going to start off today with this episode. Um, But before we do, I just want to thank this episode's sponsor, which is Catholic Match. It is the largest Catholic dating platform anywhere. And I remember when I felt, the moment I felt ready for marriage, I had done a lot in my career. I had discerned out of religious life. I had tons of friends, but I felt like, you know, no one's asking me out. And I knew I needed to seek elsewhere, but I had this hang up where I didn't want my meeting my husband story to be online dating forever and ever. (laughs) But eventually I just had to admit that, you know, this was just a hang up and uh, I swallowed my pride and I joined and I am so glad that a platform like this exists to help bring people together. So I do want to uh, encourage my single friends to join and I want to just prepare you that you will encounter a mental battle like I did um, because honestly the devil doesn't want you to find your vocation. There will be misconnections when you join a dating website and you're going to have to talk yourself down from envisioning marriage with four kids and a dog and a house, you know, with a guy only after you've seen his very brief profile. So you're going to have those mental struggles and I want to be honest because I want you to expect it to take time and to expect those spiritual struggles but you know ultimately if you feel prepared to be married I believe you're giving yourself the best possible chance by joining Catholic Match. So I am a proud so-called survivor of the dating scene and I'm so grateful to Catholic Match which facilitated me meeting my wonderful husband. So if you join by March 15th you will be automatically entered into a drawing to win a free six-month subscription. Uh, So go ahead and join at catholicmatch.com slash called and caffeinated. Use that link to be automatically entered into the drawing and Again, be sure to join by March 15th. You can also follow them on Instagram at Catholic Match for lots of wonderful dating advice. And uh, if my endorsement isn't enough, you can hear Nora in the background giving hers as well. (laughs) All right, so let's jump into our episode. Kristen Van Uden, thank you so much for joining me on Called and Caffeinated. Welcome. Hi, Stacey. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Are you drinking anything today for our interview? I've just got some coffee right here, as usual.
1: (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. Are you a black coffee girl? No, I have to. No sugar, but cream. And I can usually, I've boiled it down to two cups a day now, uh, which is a little better than the usual three. So even in these winter months where it gets dark, like, you
0: know, it's enough to get through the day. So I hear you. I totally hear you. I'm sure in the publishing world, it's like, you gotta, you gotta drink coffee.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. It's it's very fast paced. Um, I love it. It's it's a lot happening at once, but yeah, you certainly need to be on your game.
0: (laughs) Yes. Well, I'm a big fan of what you're doing at Sophia Institute Press. And I was such a fan of this book. This is The Lenten Cookbook by David Geiser with essays by Scott Hahn. And it is, I'll be sure to include in the video version of this, um, some beautiful pictures and cutaways of all of the gorgeous Catholic artwork, oh, that's a nice one. And all the recipes, they're so beautiful. Um, so I was so happy to get this in the mail and super excited. But first of all, let me just ask you, real quick, for you personally, um, what calls have you received from God in your life so far? And what has receiving those calls looked and felt like for you?
1: Yeah, so I'm a cradle Catholic. I was raised um, going to Catholic school starting from preschool all the way through college. So what is that? 20, 22 years <laughs> almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very blessed to have a very orthodox upbringing with a devotion to adoration and a real presence. So a really good grounding. Um, of course, there have been challenges living out in the world with standing up for our Catholic faith and yes. just the world that we live in is so opposed to faith and to the family. Mm-hmm. Um, attended a catholic college and then went to a secular graduate school and i actually have had the biggest call and resurgence in my faith recently with my discovery of the traditional latin mass so Mm. that has completely elevated my spiritual life i've been attending for about a year and a half now and just um a waterfall of graces that i have not experienced before Mm. that not only the beauty obviously the aesthetics of our faith but the deep meanings of the doctrines and it's really increased um just acting boldly for the faith, not worrying about um, the vice of human respect, what people will think of you, and just knowing that you know Christ suffered first for us. And if we think that we can get out of this world exempt from that suffering, then we're fooling ourselves. So, especially when we think about talking about fasting. Um, Absolutely, really I,
0: me, uh, to just live boldly in the world for Christ. So beautiful. I, <laughs> I was going to say that's a perfect lead-in for talking <laughs> about fasting, yeah. and I think it's a it's a beautiful. Um, Uh, seeking of the authenticity of the mass, which unfortunately has been, there's a lot of liturgical abuse that has happened. And I think it's so beautiful that it's unifying Catholics so many places. Right.
1: That's the thing. It's so, that's the true meaning of Catholicity is anywhere you would go in the world. just the the unity, not only of the Latin language, um, but also the fact that as a dead language, it cannot change. So the meanings of the words, Cannot be changed regardless of which priest you have and whatever his opinions may be you know that you are embracing the faith whole and inviolate which is the true meaning of the word catholic wherever you are in the world and that's how all the saints were raised uh, really up until this last century so it's been such an inspiration for me
0: that's true. That's so true. I, I also, I love Latin. I feel like it's, it's like the secret language of the church. It's like we have our own secret language, guys. This is cool. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. No, I'm picking up some more and more. I didn't study Latin formally that much um, in college, but yes, of course, if you've got the Missal, and then um, here at Sophia, we have a little publication, Benedictus, that has the translations That's awesome. um, right there, so you can follow along and not worry about being lost.
0: Yes. That's so nice. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So good lead in for our, uh, talking about fasting. Um, speaking of the authenticity of our Catholic faith. So I, when I first heard about this cookbook, I was like, okay, well, you know, it's a Lenten cookbook. What are they going to have besides like bread and water? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the motivation at, uh, Sophia to create this, this cookbook for Lent?
1: Exactly. Yeah, those those were my first thoughts as well. And I'm like, isn't this a little bit of an oxymoron because of the the concept of fasting? But when you think about it, really, no, Um, the motivation behind this was really, if you think of that famous G.K. Chesterton quote, that if you do not know how to fast, you do not know how to feast. And likewise, if you do not know how to feast, you do not know how to fast. So Mm. embracing the cyclical nature of the liturgical calendar, and how we have these great feasts in the Church, but that they require a period of preparation and of penitence. Um, Really, the two reasons for fasting are in reparation for sins, penance for sins for ourselves, and the whole world, the souls in purgatory, and also preparation. So it has been traditional throughout the Church's history to have periods of fasting before the major liturgical feasts, including even Advent used to be a period of fasting but also in your own personal lives as well. So ahead of sacraments, especially marriage, there would be a period of fasting. Um, and when you think about the the definition of fasting, you are supposed to approach it as a sacrifice, right? So it is a sacrifice. And when you really delve deep on that, what that means is that food is objectively good because if you are sacrificing from something that's bad, it's not really a sacrifice. Right. <laughs> it's just, <Right>. you know. <laughs> so. This really drives home that, yes, food is, in fact, something good that God has given us to nourish our bodies, not only with what tastes good, but what can truly give us the nutrients that we need to, to live in our bodies. You know, we're not purely souls like angels. We have this principle of sacramentality. We have a body and a soul. Um, this is the principle behind the incarnation itself, how God became man physically. That's why we receive the Eucharist physically. Um, That's why we venerate relics and we, um, you know, use icons as aids in worship. So we're not Protestants or Puritans who completely eschew the physical world or um, don't use beauty to point towards the truth. We really Mm. embrace that as Catholics. And so Mm. on the flip side of that, of course, mortifying our bodies
0: and learning how to properly live in a body is a huge part of integrating our spirituality. Absolutely, and in a world in a culture that's so obsessed with convenience and also with mm-hmm. dieting and fitness, um, you know it's quite it's very different this this concept of fasting, and it's really the true road to temperance. And of course, you find out very quickly, <laughs> every the day after Ash Wednesday, I'm always like, why did I give this up? Like, <laughs> I know, <laughs> darn it, <laughs> but it's good. You find the limits of yourself, and then you push past them, and that is the. Um, you're supposed to find the limits of yourself. And, and then you're also you're supposed to tap into the grace of God and you're supposed to turn to Him for help to help you keep going throughout the season, which is um mm-hmm. oh something that's always a work <laughs> in progress for me. So
1: <laughs> Right. And that's how we can like rightly refer to the joy of fasting, which is one of the, the chapters yes. in this book, because when we keep our eyes on God and on the spiritual goods that are going to last forever and turn away from the temporal world. Um, we can really emphasize that in all aspects Mm -hmm. of our life and to prioritize spiritual goods over any sort of temporal happiness that will not last. Fasting Mm -hmm. is kind of the quickest way to make that happen because if we can mortify our flesh through the appetites, then we'll be less likely to fall into temptation for a whole host of sins um, and also just things that
0: may not in fact be sins but might be distractions from our, our goal in heaven as well. 100%. Absolutely. So it's somewhat undefined, but uh, I realized as I delved into this, into the book, that I um, have never really learned about the history of Lent. Because Mm -hmm. Jesus didn't, Jesus fasted for 40 days in the desert, but he didn't actually prescribe a season. So can you just give, I know it's a little undefined and a little squishy historically. We're not really quite sure about certain things, but can you kind of just give a loose history of how the tradition of Lent came together?
1: Sure. So, of course, yes, that was the first Lent, really, is when Christ spent 40 days Mm -hmm. in the desert preparing for his ministry. And the timing of that is important because it was after his baptism, but before his public ministry began. So this is why um, it's before, obviously, Easter, but after the Epiphany and after those um, joyous feasts of Christmas and the presentation of our Lord in the temple. Um, Forty days, of course, has been a very symbolic number in the Bible throughout the Old Testament, you know, 40 years in the desert. Many times this number comes up. It's a the number that that symbolizes waiting for something greater, waiting to get into the promised land, um, which is really what happens during Lent spiritually on the spiritual plane. Um, it was formalized, we think, at the Council of Nicaea, along with many other things in the church. Typically, what happens with a whole host of uh, even doctrines is that there are traditions that exist that have not yet been formalized by the church, and then they are brought into a council and with the authority of Rome, formalized Mm -hmm. and then prescribed for the universal church. So from that point forward, it became required. It was incumbent upon Catholics to participate in this Lent um, in these particular fasting practices Mm -hmm. uh, under pain of sin. So the first and most rigorous uh, fast that was prescribed by the church was known as the Black Fast. And this one, and we're not sure exactly when it came into Uh, common usage, but it was pretty Mm. heavily used throughout the Middle Ages. The Black fast included no eating until after vespers. And so that's basically around sunset, although by some accounts during Lent, vespers could have been moved up a little bit. So Mm. maybe like three in the afternoon. So you could break your fast after that. Um, And then after that, it was not a free for all. So you had severe limits on what could be eaten. So only um, no meat products, no animal products whatsoever and no oil or wine. So basically a vegan diet in today's lexicon. So (laughs) no dairy, um, no cheese, nothing. So vegetables, um, uncooked, unleavened bread, things like that.
0: Uh, That was
1: intensified during Holy Week, at which point you could only have bread, water, and herbs. Um, So even more intense than Lent throughout the rest of the the Lenten period. These laws were gradually loosened um, depending sometimes upon location. Um, I know obviously we think of fish as a very Lenten penitential yes. dish, um, mm-hmm. but in some areas of the world where fish was more abundant and it was the staple in a diet, maybe eaten every day, mm-hmm. during Lent that would not really be considered a sacrifice, right? right. So right. they mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, were not allowed to eat uh, fish with bones, with backbones during that time to make that. more of a sacrificial thing. So a lot of these customs developed locally, um, all within the spirit, of course, of sacrifice and penitence. Um, But then, of course, the church proper would um, relax the laws for the universal church at various points. Um, So at certain points, up until, I guess we can fast forward to 1958, right before the Second Vatican Council, the 40-day fast was still in effect. So it wasn't just Fridays during Lent, it was every day during Lent. but dairy and um, I believe animal products such as eggs were allowed. It was just mm. a ban on meat itself and alcohol. Um, of course, the Sunday privilege was introduced as well. So that means as we know, Sundays don't really count as time during Lent. So whatever you have given up, you are allowed to indulge in on Sundays. So that was introduced mm-hmm. for the council as well. And then the current, under current law um, promulgated by Paul VI, we only have two days of complete fasting and the entire liturgical calendar so those are ash wednesday and good friday mm. um in which you can only have one full meal and then two what are known as collations so small snacks that taken together do not equal a full meal mm. um and then the abstinence from meat on fridays during lent um so yes when you think about what our ancestors went through <laughs> we really have it easy today um, yeah we're kind of
0: losers <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it feels like um, wow,
1: Like we could step it up. But
0: yes, um, yes, absolutely. And you know what it reminds me of actually is intermittent fasting, which some hmm. people do. You know, it's it's said to have health benefits and so forth. So actually, it, you know, there are a lot, there are a lot of modern equivalents. Um
1: Right, it's interesting yeah. that many people, like if you take the vegan movement, for example, it yeah.
0: basically has its roots in
1: this fast that um that yeah. had spiritual meaning, but they're just divorcing it from any sort of spiritual efficaciousness. So right. very strange. It's like the yearning for that spiritual mortification almost yeah. expressing itself in our culture.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's, yeah. that's crazy. And when you mention the black fast, is that the same thing as the Greek term? I think you pronounce it xerophagia?
1: Oh yeah, that's very similar. So similar. there was okay. um, the East and West, of course, there was the great schism in 1054, but mm. even before that there were divergent traditions. And so uh, the Eastern Byzantine Church has fasting traditions that are more intense than the West's um, xerophagia. began when the church was united, but now has become more of an Eastern practice. So it's basically the same as the black fast. Um, it means dry eating, technically, in Greek. So basically, you any oil or things that you would cook food in were forbidden as well. So it would just be more of a raw foods um, mm. before you eat no animal products um very simple
0: yes very simple from the earth yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i'd love to see a cookbook from then i'm like what do you how do you do that i know (laughs) well a lot of these a a lot of these recipes do abide by that if with the collations the smaller meals and i noticed i was like oh yeah they're vegetable based they look really really tasty but they don't have Mm -hmm. a lot of oil they don't have meat they don't have um uh you know alcohol as part like a white wine right. sauce or whatever. So a lot right. of them actually do apply and they look genuinely delicious.
1: Yes, yeah, <laughs> I'm really possible to enjoy food during Lent. <laughs> yes,
0: yes. I was looking, there's some really great stuff. There's like arugula and lentil salad. And um, mm-hmm. another one that I really looked forward to making is zucchini hash browns with avocado cottage cheese and smoked salmon. I was like, yeah. well, that does not sound like a, a sacrifice, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I love smoked salmon. And then bread pudding, Carthusian style. And there's even an entire section on curry, which I, I was just thinking the week before this arrived, I was like, I want to learn how to make curry from scratch, like mm-hmm. a really good curry. So I'm yeah. super excited to try that. And then um, there's a bunch of different hot cross buns recipes um, mm-hmm. with, there's one with pistachios and saffron, which mm-hmm. I'm really excited to try. Someone just <laughs> gave me saffron. So I'm like, oh, well, definitely have that um yes i know i'm excited for those as well
1: because um this is why this collaboration between scott hahn and david geyser is so interesting because it really comes together in these recipes um for the hot cross buns especially um of course david geyser is really um he he really loves recipes that can be versatile that you can add your own twist to that are classics but also have a signature an ability to make them signature Mm -hmm. um and scott has provided some interesting meditations even on the hot cross bun i mean I had known that it was eaten on Good Friday traditionally, right? Because obviously there's the cross. Yes. But what I hadn't known—that's provided in this book—is the background of the raisins that are typically included, and even those are symbolic. Uh, they symbolize the spices that were used to dress our Lord's body after the crucifixion in the tomb.
0: So even something as small as that um, can have viewed and- meaning. Yeah. And a a very Eucharistic symbolism there since we eat Christ's body in the Eucharist as well. Absolutely. Right. Amazing. A little bit more history. I just wanted to give my listeners and viewers a little like glimpse into ember days and rogation days, Mm -hmm. which we now no longer have as obligate fasts. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I really didn't know much about them before the book. So if you could just give like just a little peek
1: into what those are. Sure. So, Um, Up until the Second Vatican Council, so still in parishes using the 1962 calendar and earlier, ember days still exist. So these were basically, as I mentioned before, there were periods in the church's liturgical calendar other than Lent that were typically reserved for fasting throughout the year. Mm -hmm. And so ember days were some of those days. So they were placed throughout the year to prepare either for feasts, so there's a whole slew of ember days before. Um, Christmas. There's um, a tradition known as St. Martin's Lent, actually, which mm. uh, culminates on his feast day on November 11th, I believe, that is mm. f- uh, preceded by a period of fasting. So it's utilizing fasting and feasting again in this yes. cyclical way of living that um, allows us to mortify our bodies and not just wait for Lent to, mm-hmm. to make use of that virtue. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas actually discusses fasting as a virtue if you do it habitually. So it can, of course, spare all the other virtues, temperance especially, um, humility, which is really the king of the virtues when you think about it. But if something becomes a habit, fasting taken for the right reason, then it too can become a virtue. So that is really in mind with The ember days throughout the church, um, what they prepare us to celebrate and also to maintain this virtue throughout the year. Uh, Rogation days were somewhat similar, but they're a bit different. They're typically in English traditions, so from um, some historians think that they were adopted from English pagan rituals, but they would be basically days of full fasting, just like um, the ember days in preparation for feasts, but they're more of a local practice. And they would typically be associated with great public displays. So, mm-hmm. when you think about it, all of Christendom, especially in Europe, was the culturally uh, built around the church's liturgical cycle. So, you would have very—it would be very communal these days of fasting. Everybody would be eating, you know, the same thing. When when it's Lent, all the <laughs> the fishmongers, you know, were in, in business and. Yeah. Um, the entire economy was really, you know, ebbed and flowed with the church's cycle, because everybody was Catholic. Um, So, rogation days are pretty similar. I know today we still have um, processions on the Feast of Corpus Christi, right? But processions and public displays of of church feasts were quite common throughout um, Mm -hmm. the church's history on other days, and rogation days were one of those. So, Mm -hmm. we have um, some semblances of these still left, and yeah, in Catholic cultures. Um, I'm not sure if it was Rogation Day, but obviously Mardi Gras, you can see that still um, remains here in the US. Um, In a very different form. (laughs) Yes, a very different form, but (laughs) having origin in in public Catholic holidays.
0: Yeah. You know, when I was reading the book, I was like, it must've been so hard to be Catholic because you had all of these feasts or fasts rather. But then I thought, as you're talking, I'm like, wow, it actually in some senses was much easier Because you all did it together to have that community support. It's like, this is what we do. This is who we are. This is our entire culture Mm -hmm. as opposed to, uh, you know, the whole world around you is like, oh, we're going out drinking. (laughs) It's Friday, you know, and you're like, oh, no, I'm the only one. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. It's like, yeah, really
1: yearning for the days to live in a truly Catholic culture where everything is just um, completely
0: imbued yes. with the faith and you're, you're not the only one. <laughs> yes. Actually, it's really, uh, as you're speaking, this is kind of separate, but kind of related. Um, my mom follows all of these like blogs, like Catholic icing mm-hmm. is such a great blog for, okay. for moms with little children like me. And mm-hmm. she has all of these liturgical tea party ideas. So oh, you can do <laughs> Yes. And my mom is the queen of the, the liturgical tea parties. Yeah, yeah, we just we just celebrated the um, the feast of Our Lady of Lords, and we made okay. a little grotto uh-huh. out of Rice Krispies uh-huh. <laughs> and put a little a little Mary statue in it. And so I was speaking recently at Christendom College, and I get up on the mic, and I'm like, you know, I'm from a family of eight children, Credo Catholic. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom she didn't do too many liturgical tea parties growing up, but she's doing them now with my. Uh, with my children and all of my younger siblings and you know so we have this like all of these things that we do and i'm like speaking at christendom college which is like you know extremely steeped in catholic faith and culture Mm -hmm. so i thought i would mention as a point of commonality like liturgical tea parties you know like i did that (laughs) didn't you guys do that and they all looked at me like i was crazy (laughs) and i was like oh no i out christendom the christendom gals this is this is bad (laughs) That's too funny. Isn't that hilarious? Bring it back. Bring it back. I know. You know Ah. what? The kids loved it. We're still eating the rice krispie treats. It's fabulous. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yes. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's so great. (laughs) Yeah, and it helps the kids remember the saints as well. You know, and Mm -hmm. we can talk about the saint while we have our little tea party together. Um, you know, right. especially with toddlers, it's like, how do you get through the day? It's like, oh, liturgical.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. They need to be these benchmarks. Well, that's what, right. We, we are very good as Catholics about doing this during certain seasons, like Advent yes. and Lent. But really the whole yes. year is meant to be lived liturgically. And yes. that's why like here at Sophia, we have the liturgical calendars that Liturgy of the Home has put out, which are beautiful. They just came out with the Easter cycle. But awesome. those are a great aid because you, you do need those visual reminders of, oh, who is the saint today? Which yes. is that? um, we have another great cookbook called *Cooking with the Saints*. Which, um, yes, my sister um, has that one. <laughs> today. Right? Yeah. Yes. Um, and like some sort of connection that they have to the dish. So great. every
0: single day is something in the church. It's like 15 saints feast days. (laughs) Exactly.
1: You can't even choose. Like you have many to choose from. You do.
0: You do. Absolutely. And I love that going back to what we said there, um, about how, if you don't know how to feast, you don't know how, or if you don't know how to fast, you don't know how to feast. And I'm, I want to really take that to heart this year in a new way. Um, you know, because I've never really understood fasting properly, even though I was raised with all of these liturgical tea parties and so forth, right. the true spirit of fasting is not that it's a Catholic diet. It's truly, mm-hmm. um, you know, rending your heart and, and really putting mm-hmm. God first, um, And it's very humbling when, uh, you know, just giving up something small is so difficult, but so good. Right. Yeah, Yeah, I know. It's like, great. Uh, (laughs) What are some of your favorite recipes from the book? And what, I don't know if you've talked to David Geiser, he's the, the chef who, um, you know, composed all of these beautiful recipes, but do you know what his favorites were as well? Yeah.
1: So I would say my favorites are really the simple vegetable dishes because I'm always looking for something to add to like a a staple. Like if you're making chicken or something to have something new and interesting on the side. Um, So the roasted vegetables with herb dip sound really good. Mm -hmm. Um, The quesadillas, just simple staples that I'll be able to take throughout the year and not just keep in the Lenten season. Um, And they also can serve as collations during Lent. So they're, they're organized in that way where you know i know how much food this is going to be and you know yes it's, <laughs> it's acceptable for those days of fasting another mm-hmm. thing i like is that um the recipes are all given both in grams and in american measurements of cups and tablespoons yes. and so on so very helpful world uh <laughs> this is helpful <laughs> especially if any great british bake-off fans are using the scale to, <laughs> to cook. yeah Ooh. Make it a little easier, right? Exactly. Um, (laughs) And in terms of David Geiser, I'm not sure exactly what his favorites are in here, but you can definitely see his influence coming through because he lives in Zurich now, of course, um, but he did live in residence at the Vatican for so long when he wrote his Vatican cookbooks with us. So he clearly has this sort of pan-European influence in his his dishes. And so you'll see... um, examples of recipes in here from really all throughout Europe. So something like potato pancakes, which is typically more Eastern European associated Mm -hmm. to um, right here, Italian style flatbread, you know, really built on from his time in Italy. So that's what I really like that he brings. uh, I mean, he's been cooking forever. He was kind of a teenage wunderkind with um, cooking and he, he got his start really early. So he's had lots of experience and Um, during his time in the Vatican, presumably uh, cooked for the Pope himself. So you
0: know that these are tried and true recipes that have met the the standards of the Swiss Guard and beyond. (laughs) Love it. I know. I I do enjoy the internationality of the cookbook for sure. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's so beautiful. I'm just going to have it like on my coffee table (laughs) Yeah, all throughout Lent to inspire me. (laughs) Yes. There's something about
1: really um, well done photographs of food that make you want to be inspired to cook them more. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. If if I can make it look like this, then it's going to taste better. So (laughs) my husband said to me, he's like, nobody buys cookbooks to cook from anymore. Everybody I know doesn't cook from their cookbooks. They just use them as coffee table books and they just look at the pictures of the food. And I think as like, as women, that's like really easy for me to understand. I'm like, of course you want to look at the pictures of the food. And he's just like, just like as a man, he's like, I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> Great, yeah. Okay. But I'm like, whatever you're doing, whatever you have it for, either way, it's acceptable.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I don't think I own a cookbook where I've made all of the recipes. Right. You know, sometimes you just want to look at them as aspirational, um, and other times sure. <laughs> they're much more practical. And, th- and this cookbook has, you know, levels of challenge. Um, yeah. You know, up and down the scale, depending on what you're in the mood for. I know there's
0: one recipe that I think may be the most ambitious, that is an octopus dish. Um, yeah. So if try
1: that, let me know.
0: <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that. We were doing the letter of the week for my preschoolers and uh, we went and found octopus and cooked them. You did? I, nice. I did, whole baby octopus or octopi or whatever. What so we just- smart? Um, you know, I thought is, is calamari squid. Is that squid. Okay. I think calamari is squid, yeah. but we did cook them without any breading on them. And it was interesting. They were like, anyway, sorry if that grosses anyone <laughs> no. out, but I know where to get octopus now. So I may there have to you try go. that one. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, Kristen, <laughs> nice thank you so much for your time and really appreciate it. Uh, I will definitely put a link in the show notes to buy the Lenten cookbook. And I'm so excited to get some history of Lent, all these fascinating traditions that I think- it's important for us to know. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Stacey. God bless you God bless you. Thank you so much for tuning into Called and Caffeinated. If you're enjoying my content, I would so appreciate a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it really does help the show get seen by more eyes and know that you would have my gratitude. Um, all right. I hear my kids waking up and there's a beautiful sunrise coming up. So... <laughs> Uh, I just wanted to let you know that I am praying for you wherever you are in the world, and I'm uh, especially hoping for a wonderful, fruitful Lent for you. So feel free to come on over to StacySummero.com, connect with me, ask a question if you have one for a Q&A episode in the future, and uh, until we have coffee together again, God bless you abundantly.